What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. A then young musician was approached seemingly out of nowhere at the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, California by Asian Man Records employee Mia Osaki. She wanted to know if he was interested in possibly playing drums on an upcoming Japan tour in Mike Park's new band, The Chinkies, an all-Asian American ska punk band that purposefully incorporated a slur in their name to encourage people to think about racism and the power of words. Steve is our guest today on In Defense of Ska, and though the Chinkies have not been active in a decade and a half, Steve and Mike recently released a new Chinkies EP called K.A. Music last year. But Steve is perhaps best known for his work with the RX Bandits, whom he joined in the early 2000s. The RX Bandits were a 90s Southern California ska punk band that eventually transcended to prog rock heights and continue on to this day. Over the past 25 years, Steve has played in a million other bands like Slow Gherkin, The Blockheads, Peaced Out, and Trust Foundation. These days, he's hosting the Musicians Guild on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. I feel like Steve Choi's been a fixture in my life playing music like as, for almost as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. The, he played my first show, he played drums in, in, in The Blockheads. Then we toured together when he was in the Chinkies, and then, and then he and then he ended up in RX Bandits, and we toured with them a ton. I feel like there isn't a point in my life where where Steve wasn't a part of it playing music. And he's such a diverse, eclectic musician. He's been all over the place, you know, with uh, the ska stuff he was doing in the '90s, and then RX Bandits, which went on to become a very different and very diverse band and all the other side projects that he's done alongside that. And then, and then to, you know, he started out with, you know, he's classically trained. He can play the cello. He can play piano. You know, he was playing, playing with orchestras as a kid and for him to still be kind of still so down to earth and not, uh, 
egotistical about it is really nice. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear his whole thought process on music because starting out as a classically trained musician, he felt like that was limiting to him and he, and he kind of had to go back to basics before he could really learn how to incorporate that stuff into rock music. Yeah. I feel like talking to a lot of musicians, you, you hear that, um, you know, depending on the amount of training you have, you still kind of end up turning that off sometimes when you're just in creative mode. Yeah. And then you kind of come circle back to it when, if you get stuck. But, uh, I feel like I've had that conversation with a bunch of different musicians and it always seems to, to kind of come around like that. Yeah, me too. It seems like it. there's just all the rules and all that is too much at first. It's just, you have to learn how to feel music before you can really incorporate rules. Okay. Growing up, what was your upbringing around music? Uh, should we like uh, an abridged version? I mean, I just know that you, you took piano lessons, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. Well, I took piano lessons. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there's so much to it that I will give an abridged version so that we, I don't bore you guys and anybody listening to death. Started playing piano at four, classically trained the piano, started playing the cello at nine, started playing in orchestras, started playing drums and bass and jazz band at 12, started playing percussion and guitar at around 13. So I was doing a mix of orchestra with cello, marching band and drum corps with percussion jazz band with bass and drums and then started playing in punk bands and getting into that stuff uh right around that same time and so how how was that like playing with other teenagers who are maybe just starting out on their instruments and you've you've been playing for a long time um i mean it was cool i'm sure i was like an asshole when i was a kid (laughs) because music was so easy for me and i had had the privilege and the advantage of having so much musical education made available to me. I also played with some pretty talented dudes then that also played multiple instruments. So I was lucky. I, uh, well, maybe the biggest way I was an asshole is that I was a snob about who I played with. (laughs) I don't know. Aaron, did, did your parents push you to take music lessons? Piano lessons? Yes. And um, funny story about my piano lessons is I was in the middle of a piano lesson when the big earthquake in 89 hit the Bay Area. I took drums in band. I started in fourth grade in the, no, no. Yeah, I started in fourth grade and I did it all the way to freshman year doing like marching drums and everything like that. And that was all prior to me playing in in, uh, rock bands and stuff. My perspective is, I mean, I didn't start playing an instrument until I was 16. And so both, I know that both of you guys, just, just from when I met both of you, you both had pretty serious chops and were playing at a level above like what most teenagers play at. Um, And so it's always just been an, an interesting situation for me as somebody who's, you know, come into it very late and didn't come from a place of, of uh, having it pushed to me as a, as a kid. And definitely, I mean, I, what Steve said about playing with, um, be, you know, being able to be choosy about who you played with. I remember, you know, Aaron played with kind of the the better kids at our school that were, you know, kind of like the prog kids. Oh, you guys went to high school together? Yeah, we did. 
So the weird thing, though, about my, I don't know if it's different for you, Steve, but my parents did encourage this and push this, but they, I feel like they almost hate music in a way. They have no interest in music whatsoever. I'm like the freak of the family that I'm obsessed with music. Wow. Do you have a family that's really into music? Um, I would say that me being from a Korean family, uh, they definitely loved music and were happy that I was so active and successful in structured music. Like I won piano competitions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then I would also like audition for and be admitted to like uh, honor orchestras and stuff like that. So they would get like the best kids from the high schools and then we'd all get together at like University of Pacific and Modesto or whatever and like do these things. But like kind of like all county or all state for like sports when you're growing up, you know? So I think they liked it in that regard, but I think they definitely resented it for a while when I was like, yeah, you know, all that training I had and all that promise I showed. Yeah, well, I'm going to join a rock band. We just got a record deal and I'm not going to go to school anymore and I'm never (laughs) going to be around and I'm literally going to devote my life to this. (laughs) But uh, slowly but surely, I think they saw that we took it pretty seriously and that we were at least able to get get it to a level uh, where we could sustain a living. And it was like, you know, it wasn't a hobby, obviously. So yeah, um, it's gone through many phases. So yeah, that's kind of like the long, complicated, but most accurate uh, answer to your question. So the first band I remember you being in was the Blockheads. Yeah. Is that, was that your first like punk band or? No, there was a couple other bands before that. Um, and I also wanted to speak to what you were saying, Adam Davis, about coming into music later and what it was like for someone like me or Aaron who had like a lot of formal training ahead of time. Thing is, is that I found is that that formal training has helped in the technique of playing and the options that are available to you creatively. But other than that, really, when I was finding my creativity and writing songs, like in my first punk bands and so on, it was in spite of all my training. It was me having to detrain myself and forget a lot of these rules to think in a brand new way and approach music, literally relearning music, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I was playing Tchaikovsky symphonies on the cello in like a 1680-piece uh, orchestra in a 16-piece cello section. But the first time I discovered that I could literally make a bar chord and arrange them in my own way, like just like Green Day did, my mind was fucking blown. You know, that was like one of the biggest epiphanies to me. Like I can make up whatever I want. And even if it's not very good, it's still music and it's like my music. And then the whole thing changed. So the reason I thought of that is because to tie it into the question you just asked me about uh, if there were other bands, I, I had a couple punk bands that were like super Bay area, nineties, pop punk, a la lookout records and stuff um, in high school, starting from when I was like 14 and a two, a couple of them were I played bass guitar and sang, but the Blockheads was like the first band that played real shows locally that, like, was with older guys and that a couple hundred people sometimes would come and watch us play, you know, in in the at the Phoenix Theater and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool for me. Yeah, that was that was where we played together the first time. Yeah, Link eighty on a very rainy night. I remember that show well. Yeah, I I missed your set because I was driving up from Gilroy and. I was driving up with Seth and we got there late. The rest of the band, I think, was already there. 
they were already there. And yeah, I remember just like thinking you guys look so edgy and intimidating because I was still uh, like this naive little kid from the suburbs of Santa Rosa. And like you guys had like ear piercings and like a couple like small tattoos. And like I saw Joey Bustos walking around with his shaved head, like looking all mean. And like I was like, whoa, those guys look really tough, you know? <laughs> I got to know uh, most all of them very, very well afterwards, and they're all really sweet guys, to be honest. It's all a bunch of softies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What? So after after the Blockheads, what did you do after that? Because I feel like there's this section in there that I, I don't really know. Uh, Basically, either at that Link 80 show or another show after that in that same year, Mike Park and Mia were there uh, at a Blockhead show we were playing. Uh, oh, no, it, I think it was with Gherkin. We were playing with Slow Gherkin, that's why. Okay. And um, at that time, uh, Raj Records had put out the This Is Raj comp mm-hmm. with uh, Filibuster, Punch the Clown, Slow Gherkin, and uh, what was that other band called? Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, so Mike Park was at that show, and... I don't know if he knew who I was already because of the Blockheads because we would go to Santa Cruz and play. Like we played with Lonely Kings in Santa Cruz and Slow Gherkin and the Huxtables at UC Santa Cruz. Like, And this is when I was still in high school because all the other guys in the band were older. Uh, but Mike literally had Mia, who was his like uh, really main employee for a very long time. She was like part of like the beginning era of Asian Man Records, like becoming like a real serious record label he had her come up to me at the backstage of the phoenix theater after the blockheads had played and she was like uh do you know who mike park is i'm like yeah (laughs) i do i had just seen skank and pickle at uh sonoma state university play an outdoor show uh a year and a half prior to that and so this was right after skank and pickle had broke up or I guess a couple years after, because um, it was 98. Oh, yeah, a couple years after. So, um, yeah, so she says, he would like to talk to you about some kind of like jamming or playing opportunity. And I was like, what? Does he want me to play drums or something? And like, so he was talking about this new project he was putting together called The Chinkies, and it was going to be all Asian. And he needed members for it. And uh, he wanted me to play drums or keyboard or organ. So um, that's how I met him. And uh, that was the next thing I did in conjunction, like literally at the same time that was happening. I was becoming very good friends with the Slow Gherkin guys. And um, I believe they had me fill in on keyboards for a show with them early on and so i was uh, in the process of moving to santa cruz at that time which you know obviously is you know 30 to 45 minutes away from where asian man was where all the rehearsing would be and stuff like that so uh, i joined the chinkies and uh, started living in santa cruz yeah i want to hear about slow gherkin the slow gherkin period because we had slow gherkin on a little while ago and they were talking about you playing with them they said that you 
did a tour with them and that you played every instrument at some point on that tour. <laughs> I think I only played bass, drums, and keyboard, to be fair. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, those guys are, I love those guys so much for taking me in when I was younger and this little like shitty teenager and taking me on my, taking me on my first tour. Um, and yeah, I did a tour with them playing keyboard and then drums. Then I did like New Year's Eve shows in Santa Cruz or random catalyst shows with them playing bass when they needed. So I was just so enamored with hanging out with bands from other places, especially at that time in the late 90s. Slow Gherkin was getting so popular in the Bay Area. They were, at the time, they were one of the most popular bands in the Bay Area, like most popular ska in like underground, you know, maybe ska punk bands. So I just felt really happy to be around them because my time in Santa Cruz and my time around them put me in the contact with so many bands like that age between 18 and 21 like i did so much and when i look back on it i'm so grateful because i was just so lucky so at the time did ska stand out to you as something different or did it just feel like an, an extension of punk rock oh it was very different it was very it was very different it was uh I don't know how to put it like it was definitely in my view of part of the subculture in the general universe of punk that I was enveloped in, you know? So at the time, like big variety shows at the Phoenix were popular. You would have trad ska bands on with like gritty punk bands with weird, you know, like funk metal bands and stuff. So it was around. Uh, I wasn't like a huge ska fan, but there were bands like the Suicide Machines and Op Ivy and stuff that were really important to me. Like I really liked those bands, you know? Yeah. So somewhere in there, I think, didn't Mike Park end up hooking you up with um, the specials to play keyboard? <laughs> yeah. How did, what happened there? Technically, uh, even though there were shows where it was billed as the specials, uh, which probably looking back now, like Roddy, uh, Horace, or no, Linville and uh, Neville were probably kind of like breaking the rules by doing that. Um, Chuck, who was the drummer of Skink and Pickle. Lincoln, the guitarist of Let's Go Bowling. Adam Thies, who was also a trombone player, amazing jazz arranger and composer. He had also been playing trombone in Let's Go Bowling. They were the rest of the band. And um, yeah, they were looking for a keyboard player. And Mike's like, I know this kid. Uh, he just moved to Santa Cruz. And he plays in one of my bands. Like, he's good enough. And yeah, I just did it. I did it for like eight months. Wow. What kind, what size shows? Were they playing big shows or was it smaller shows? It was a mix. Like we played like 91X, which is like the Live 105 of San Diego. We like we played a festival show like with Blink and Ben Folds 5. And I'm like 19 years old. I've been on one tour. And we would play, we played like Santa Anita Raceway here in LA, which is like big. 
But then we would do it like a lot of small two to four hundred cap clubs too. Yeah. But I'm 19. I'm living in a garage of this house in Santa Cruz that I converted into a bedroom. I'm getting a $30 per diem and getting paid 150 bucks a show. So we go out for like 10 days. You know, my rent at the time is like $350. So we go out for 10 days or two weeks and like, I'm like hood rich, like kid rich, you know, at 19. <laughs> I'm like, I can pay rent, pay my phone bill. You know how many burritos I can buy with this money? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> what were the specials like at that point? I know, I feel like specials since, you know, since their heyday, been good and bad. It's It's varied depending on who's in the band and stuff. Well, um, like I said, they were probably being pretty cheeky calling it the specials at times, which should have been like these dudes from the specials. Right. But we were just doing a full on special set. And I'm just like, looking back now, I'm like, damn dude, this 19 year old Korean kid from the suburbs is playing Jerry Dammer's parts. Like the, the uh, fucking abomination, man. Like, you know, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> luckily, Roddy, the guitarist, was there for like most of the time that I did that. And he was a really lovely guy. He was really solid on all of his parts, like on all the songs. I just remember playing like Gangsters or Ghost Town and just being back there playing like the organ. Like one time we headlined the Key Club in Hollywood, which is like, you know, it's not big or small, it's medium, but it's like a very well-known place. I'm just watching him play these riffs and I'm just like tripping out, just going like, damn, dude, this is trippy, you know? I mean, that's super trippy. I remember the first time somebody told me that you had played in the specials. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was so <laughs> weird. People bring that up now, like, while I'll be sitting around, like, Anthony from Bayside always loves to talk about, like, this guy played with the specials, and it's just like, people are just like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, <laughs> it, I mean, it really didn't make sense at the time, because I think when I heard it, you were like, it was maybe like the next year you were like 20 or 21. And I was, so I was like, when, when was he in the specials? Like when he was like five, what the heck are you talking about? Pretty much. I mean, now at my age, 19 year old, five year old, whatever, same difference now. <laughs> in defense of Ska will return in a moment. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay. 
Okay, so you were you were in Gherkin, and I I've heard you tell this story before. But then, how did you get hooked up with the RX Bandits guys? Um, so I lived in a house in Santa Cruz, and we would have a lot of bands stay over. You know, like a lot, like the Alkaline Trio's first time in California, they stayed at our house. So who did you, who was your roommates? Who did you live with in Santa Cruz? I lived with a girl named Julia from Milpitas, who was very well connected in the scene and knew all of those bands at the time. Mm-hmm. And then just the uh, other people were rotating cast, right? So for a small, short time, like the original bass player of Gherkin, Zach, lived there. And then uh, other people moved in. But this house was like a really nice house. Lady who owned it decided to rent it to a bunch of kids because Julia had a regular job at the um, the uh, Denny's there uh, on the other side of Mission from Mission Street in Santa Cruz, and so we would have a lot of bands stay there. Like like I was saying, the Alkaline Trio's first time there, they stayed there. Uh, they stayed there the next time with Mu Three Thirty because they were on tour together, and I have very fond memories of like seeing like Ted and Chris Diebold hanging out in the living room and just getting to spend a lot of time with Jerry and all of them just to see like what special people they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, yada yada yada. Like I'm, like the Blood Brothers stayed there for a week when their van broke down. Like all kinds of stuff. And then one night, Phil from Silgerkin, who is the saxophonist, calls me and said, "Our friends playing this band called the RX Bandits, and they just played the Key Club in San Jose. They need a place to stay. Can they stay at your house?" And I just happened to have been home like that morning from tour. And I said, yeah, sure. Cool. They can stay here. And they came over they came over after the show. And like I had a Joan of Arc poster in my room because like uh I'm a big J Tree Records fan. And especially at that time, I loved all their stuff, you know. Um that was my favorite shit. And we kind of bonded over that and bonded over our love for Gazi. We became good friends. And we were friends, you know, and I also played keyboards with them. They were like, Oh, we want a keyboardist with us for these hometown big album release shows and I demoed music with them and that kind of just led to me joining the band. So I was, I was looking around and so your first, your first album is resignation, right? Uh huh. But you you're in the video for analog boy and you were already recording demos with them at that point. So it was, the band was definitely in like a huge state of flux at that point. Yeah. Like I demoed songs for progress but I didn't, I wasn't an official member yet, but I played keyboard and organ and stuff on demos for that record. Yeah. And then I saw that they, they had one of the guys from the hippos. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it seems like the only people like that, that came through were Matt and, and, uh, Seagak, right. From the previous lineup. Uh, at that time, uh, Rich was still in the band. Right. Okay. Yeah. When I joined, yeah. Right. Okay. So then, resignation ends up being like the first place where you're like a full member writing songs. Yeah. Totally. Had you ever seen RX Bandits when they were just pharmaceutical bandits? No. When I first met them, and that is right when they had released an album called Halfway Between Here and There, where they had become the RX Bandits. And they were slowly transitioning out of the SoCal, like real big fish, somewhere in between real big fish and sublime thing to like 
getting better as like young musicians and starting to write, they're kind of like their own style, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my perspective of it was always like when, when it went from being pharmaceutical bandits and the kind of earlier, what you were saying, like SoCal sound, and then it made this shift and like progress is kind of like the spot where it really starts to shift. But then resignation is where it really hits for me. Like, it's just so weird because I feel like, I mean, you guys did great and you guys put out great albums, but I felt like, like that, having that history of having been the pharmaceutical bandits, like, did you guys ever feel like it was hard to shake that? Oh, it was hard to shake that for a while. Yeah. Uh, we were young kids. They were young kids and we we're getting into labels that didn't have great imaging or branding or reputations, but we just wanted to like get out there, you know? And we didn't have that discretion. So um, it really didn't start to shift until, well, it started to shift after the resignation, obviously, because musically and aesthetically, like we lost tons of fans. Like there was huge backlash on message boards and stuff about the album. I remember reading it. What sort of stuff did you read? Oh, like straight up, this is terrible. What is this <laughs> aggressive crap? Why why are they making a record that looks like Marilyn Manson? That's what somebody said. Oh, because of Nagel's art? Yeah, and uh, other stuff. Like, all, all this, like, what are they trying to do? I remember somebody saying, like, literally, what are they trying to do? Um, and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. I, I remember for a long time, like, the resignation was a... a big album for me just as somebody who likes music um and trying to get people to like give it a chance was hard just because the stigma of ska yeah like of like dorky like socal ska yeah like people people were just like what no i'm not gonna and it's like no like you gotta check this out it's fucking crazy and it took it took a lot it definitely did i mean it was brick by brick for us you know which is probably why we have kind of the able to have the longevity that we have is because we never were built around much hype or anything, you know? Right. Did it feel like, like, a, like a full circle in a sense that, you know, you, you had all this training, then you got into playing like simple red or whatever punk rock and stuff, but then our expanded, you're going into this more progressive rock, direction that's that maybe Mike harkens back to some of your early training or did it feel like that at all it it 1000 percent was it was all actually woven together um which is once i finally started writing enough music and kind of getting past that hump of like emulating like most people do in the beginning which is legit that's how everybody needs to start you emulate what you love and then within that you find your own style so once I was able to get past like the power chords and repeating like lead lines under a changing chord progression, which a lot of pop punk is predicated upon, um, kind of bludgeoned to death by Blink-182, that kind of uh, formula. Yeah. Um, I started to be able to draw, like meaning when I got good enough at the bass, drums, or guitar, I started being able to pull out my classical training, meaning... I started to finally get into music that wasn't sounding like Bay Area pop punk, a la Mr. T Experience and, uh, uh, you know, Green Day and stuff like that. So 
it was totally coming full circle because, you know, also me coming from ska bands into another band that was a ska band, uh, my principal role, both in retrospect and at that time, was like, I was thinking this, they were already wanting this, but it was like, I'm coming into this band and we're going to very much not be a ska band anymore. We're not going to deny ska. We're just going to kind of incorporate it in a totally different way and it's going to get reframed and reprioritized. Yeah. But even my first record with the band, uh, there are a few different tracks where that element is still there. It's just repurposed in a very different way. Yeah, that was the thing that I thought was really cool about um, RX Bandit's shift was that it wasn't that you guys um, sh- did like a hard shift away from Scott. It was that you were elevating it and, and showing what could be done with it. It didn't just have to be flicky, flicky, you know, that sort of thing. It could it could be something of, with more substance. Now, I want to I want to back up a little bit because we skipped over a couple things. So with the Chinkies, when when you when you join the Chinkies, that first album, how how was that recorded? Okay, so when I joined the band, my kid already had that first album recorded. And he had used basically Slapstick's rhythm section. Right. Because it was, well, by that time they were Tuesday, right? So yeah. Rob Kellenberger, Dan Andriano, and, uh, oh shit, I think the other guitarist's name was Dan too, wasn't it? I can't remember. Aaron, can you remember that? I don't remember. He was the okay. guitarist of Tuesday also. Okay. Oh, anyway. So they, uh, for a lot of ska bands, especially white boy Midwest ska bands, because of Rob Kellenberger and Dan Andriano's musicality, uh, Slapstick had already had such really good ska feel. Like one of the better ones, I would say. Definitely. And so he used them to record the first Chinkies record. And so uh, we were brought in to be the live band and he put pictures of us on the record, which is like ridiculous, but. uh. (laughs) Now, part of why I bring that up is I always wanted, I was just wondered, because I mean, like I've experienced this coming into a ska band later. Did you ever have imposter syndrome because of having to come in and, and perform on an album that was other dudes playing the music? Oh yeah, totally. But that, I didn't, I didn't process it as imposter syndrome where I'm like, Oh, I shouldn't be here. It kind of like, I didn't have the self-awareness to get there yet. So it was just frustrating to me. I was like, I wish I didn't have to play these songs. Or I think (laughs) I had much more like rudimentary way of thinking at the time. Yeah. But I I definitely distinctly remember that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, coming, coming into that band. So like in the music video that Mike made, he has Greg pretending to play drums, right? Yeah. That first one, yeah. <laughs> and then it sounds like when he had Mia approach you, it was about um, having you play drums. But did he know that you played keys? I think he found out soon after, but they mainly knew me as a drummer because of the blockheads. You know, we had been doing more at that time in my senior year of high school. Like in that same few months, we went to Bottom of the Hill and played a showcase for Lookout Records because we were one of like nine or some bands around the area that they were like possibly looking into signing or something, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. So you, you played drums on the first Chinkies tour then? No, I never ended up playing drums. 
uh, live. I ended up playing drums on a record later on, but uh, about, I would say, five, six months after I was approached, I went on my first tour with the Chinkies and we went to Japan. And we played shows to 3,000 to 4,000 people every night. <laughs> Amazing. You know, it's funny. I was living with Mike Park at the time. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. So leading up to that Japan tour, he did not have a drummer. And <laughs> he was he was telling me, he's like, okay, if I don't find a drummer, you're going to be the drummer and you're going to wear a mask. <laughs> 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 I was like, I'm ready. Let's do it. But then he found a drummer. That's so Mike. Uh, <laughs> oh, I totally forgot you lived there at that time, man. That's when I first met you is when I would drive all the way from Santa Rosa, all the way down there to Campbell to rehearse in that tiny room in the garage. Yep. That tiny room. Yeah. We would either go eat Taco Bravo or Fresh Choice afterwards. One or the other. Yeah, there was just so many uh, musicians coming and going at Mike's house at the, at, during the time I lived there. One time, like, Kamuri stayed there. Yep. Um, ME230 ME was there. Then their roadie, Joey, he just hung out for, like, weeks after. Yeah. <laughs> Him and I would just go hang out and do stuff. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was trippy. And as soon as Mike got the trampoline in the backyard, we would all hang out there so much more. <laughs> I <Yeah>. remember <laughs> me and Dan Andriano jumping on that trampoline and me, Matt, Dan Andriano and Skiba jumping on that trampoline for like three days straight, just smoking pot and drinking. <laughs> so you had never met Mike before when Mia came up to you. He was a stranger, essentially. I knew him from Skank and Pickle because, like I said, I saw them at that outdoor concert at Sonoma State University, and it was big. Like, there was a couple thousand people there. But, I mean, you hadn't met him in, you hadn't met him yet. You just knew who he was. I just knew who he was, and I just remember being like, dude, another Korean guy in, like, a punk band. Like, amazing. Amazing. Who was, who was in the lineup for Chinkies for that Japan tour? It was uh, me... Greg Alessandro, Miyazano Saki, and Rich Marin. Uh, Rich was a musician in SF at the time because Mia played in that band, The Mugs, and they were very connected in the SF music scene at the time, like San Francisco music scene. And she knew Rich from like a couple other bands. So yeah, he was like a Guamanian Filipino dude. Did you go to The Mugs the, when the, the show where The Mugs opened for Fugazi? Uh, end hits tour watsonville fucking community center bro it was oh, incredible yeah. were all three of us at that show i was at i was at that show and the show that fugazi played at trocadero and watsonville totally blew that away watsonville was one of the best shows i've seen in my life still i still talk about that show and I now, I can talk about that show like an old guy who got to see a legendary show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because even now, when you think about 2,000 people going there to see Fugazi at, in the middle of nowhere in Watsonville, it's incredible. Yeah. Have, I, so that, that song's available on the Fugazi Live Archive. Have you, have you gone and downloaded it? That show is? Yes. Oh, I need to do that. It's, it's like time travel, putting that recording on. It's you will be blown away by how much of it you remember, like down to the banter. Oh, I remember the banter. I remember. What do you remember about the banter? There was a really good part. Um, I remember definitely being there having to do some jock reprimanding at that show. Mm -hmm. And then I remember these 
just insufferable bros that kept punishing them about waiting room. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I think that was pretty standard. Yeah, I guess it was. There was there there was a guy in the audience who kept yelling six pack during <laughs> during their set. And at one point Ian just goes up to the mic, he's like, Six pack, sir? Not only do you have the wrong band, like, but you have the wrong like it was something like you have the wrong band, but you have the wrong decade. He just like really shut him down like so hard. Yeah. Like I think this this dude must have thought it was like a fucking minor threat song. I mean that was nineteen ninety nine, right? Uh yes. So there were still probably enough like dude bros that didn't know what they were about yet. You 100%. know, obviously. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so where in there did you and Brian Moss do the Trust Foundation? Literally at that same time while I was doing all that other stuff. <laughs> and, and so was that just a recording project or I think you guys played some shows, didn't you? We never ended up playing some shows. We intended on it, but we never got to that point. Okay. Yeah. And was that, did that get put out on Tomato Head? Yes, it did. Yeah. That was Chuck from Skank and Pickles record label that he started. Yeah. 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 Wow. I, uh, Aaron, if you haven't heard that recording, the Trust Foundation, how would you describe the Trust Foundation to somebody who's never heard it, Steve? Um, so it was a 19-year-old who pretty much only liked, uh, at that point, like the emo and indie rock at the time. So my favorite bands were like Built to Spill and uh, Karate and stuff like that, you know, like uh, Super Chunk, stuff like that. And then... Uh, specifically, I had heard the No Knife record, Fire in the City of the Automatons. I had gotten End Hits, which had just come out, which literally I fell in love with. And Shape of Punk to Come had just come out literally that year. And uh, I lived down the street from Matt Bettinelli Open, and he gave me a cassette tape of Shape of Punk to Come. And that record absolutely blew my face off. And I also, at the time, got into Hums, You'd Prefer an Astronaut. And then I was so inspired by those records that I wanted to start a band. And I did it with Brian Moss because we were into the same stuff. And it came out as the Trust Foundation. And that's how I would describe the music. Like a young kid nice. having his like uh, lid blown off by those records, you know? Does that music exist anywhere besides on like CDs that are buried in people's drawers somewhere uh there's a plea for peace comp that it we had a song on and that okay. exists online like on streaming oh, okay nice so there's one song from that ep that uh is on like all the sh like spotify and shit like that right i just remember loving that record because i just knew you from the chinkies a ska band and then i knew brian moss from alien spy a ska band <laughs> And so it was these two dudes from ska bands who had made this like crazy angular indie rock album. And you played, I mean, you played everything on that record, right? Uh, yeah. Bass, drums, guitar. And I think there's even like a weird vocal part on there. Yeah. There's a couple weird vocal parts I sang. Yeah. I just, I'm specifically thinking like the weird yelling part. Uh, where I think you said you were like really stoned. Well, I was really stoned for that. <laughs> I mean, uh, to be, uh, I mean, essentially I've been really stoned since then until now. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but luckily my memory 
and my cognitive abilities seem to be serving me okay, so I'm cool with it. But anyway, um, yeah, it, I didn't even know you listened to that or liked it. So, oh, really? I've listened to it. Okay, so we did the Misfits of Ska Tour, us, ME, uh, Link 80, MET 30, and the Chinkies. Yeah. 15 people in a 14 passenger bus driven by a crazy person. Seven weeks across Europe. Seven weeks across Europe. Nobody knows where the hostel is. <laughs> And just punishing that dude, Barney. Who t- I didn't realize until like a month ago that the Toasters wrote a song about that dude. Oh yeah, he's legendary, bro. Uh, especially with the Moon Ska dudes, because all the Moon Ska bands used him. Right. That's how. That's how Mike found out about him. He asked Buck about him, and Buck was like, "Use this guy, Barney." <laughs> on on so on the on the rating scale of 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 drivers the. Uh, you've had in, in the UK and in Europe. Uh, where does Barney land? Uh, definitely the creepiest. <laughs> um, but overall, like, it's not like he was fucking up all the time. He was a pretty solid driver. Eh? Yeah. I mean, I got to give it to him that he was pretty solid and he got us where we were supposed to go. Yeah. But never have I seen such a deep, dark void in somebody's eyes. <laughs> right back after this hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out it's the what podcast Thanks. I just, I remember the real turning point was he, he yelled at Rob Kellenberger who was playing drums for, yeah, for the Chinkies at the time. And that turned everyone on him. <laughs> like we all hated that dude after that. Cause Rob is like the nicest, funniest dude. Yeah. And he like, he like really laid into him and everybody was like, Nope, fuck this guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was definitely, I mean, yeah, he used to call me Spiky Top because <laughs> I had short hair, and he would have this little smile, and he'd be like touching his exposed belly, and he'd be like, "Hello, Spiky Top," and I'd be like, "Hey, Barney." Yeah, Aaron, this this dude would wear these Tokyo Ska. Was that the Tokyo Ska Jazz Orchestra? Was that the shirt he would wear? Yeah, it was a, a you know because at those times gas station shirts were like super popular merch, especially for ska bands. Like you got to make like a gas station shirt. Yeah, so he would wear one of those, like totally unbuttoned, and his like, like protruding belly, like the, as the tour went on, he just like would button it up less and less and less until it was just completely open. As he was getting more comfortable with you, yeah, he would just wear these sweatpants, and he was just like such a creep. We have a we have a videotape of him somewhere like making out with two kids from one of the shows. It's so gross. It's so gross. Wait, so what was the toaster song about him? It's about uh, him selling T-shirts at the show. Do you know the name of the song? It's called Barney. Oh, it's called Barney. Okay, I'll have to. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Okay, so yeah, so on that tour, I was I would listen to. I think the two things I did the most on that tour were listen to Trust Foundation, and Greg had brought a color Game Boy with him, and he had Beat Mania on it, which was only a Japanese release, and so I would just play Beat Mania and listen to Trust Foundation. 
Wow, I didn't and that. and be wedged between between Rob Bell and Jerry. Uh, you know what else you did on that tour? You're forgetting that all of you guys did is you guys listened to so much of that Papa Roach record and oh, I believe it. so much White Pony. Like, I remember being like, these dudes play in this like kind of like hardcore ska band, and like all they listen to is like Sacramento rap rock. This is so weird to me. Yeah. I mean, we were deep into that. I mean, especially Steve, you know, Steve Borth was a big proponent for the, um, you're right. Deftone stuff. But then, I mean, we also, we played with Papa Roach a lot. Like we played their CD release show for that Infest album. So like they, they were like just another band to us. And then they like, I'm pretty sure that we and the Blockheads played at Vacaville Community Center with them too. And they had a trombone in their band. That, that checks out. Yep, the first the first version of that band had a trombone, and then eventually they shifted over. Their original nice. drummer used to be on percussion. Yeah. He yeah. would do percussion and backing vocals, and they had this dude Will that was playing bass, and Will was like a Christian camp counselor. And then they got then they got Tobin, the dude who's in the band now, and he was like kind of a serious like like songwriter type guy, and he's the one that wrote that main riff for that their big hit Last Resort. He wrote it on piano. Nice. So he make hit song. They made a hit song. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> now they tour with Buck Cherry. Yeah. That is not ska. <laughs> no, Buck Cherry, not ska. And neither that Papa Roach hit song, not ska. I mean, it could be. Oh, you know, there's ska versions of it. There's ska versions of it. Oh, there's ska versions of everything. Yes. I saw, I saw Papa Roach play in, I want to say like 2008 or 2009. I saw them play in um, San Jose. No, it was it was more recent than that. Was it more recent? I had kids because <laughs> I, I was going to go with you, but I I I I couldn't leave. I just happened to get free t- free tickets because I was writing for the newspaper in San Jose, and um, they did their set. It was it was definitely like it felt like it was the '90s the whole time, and then for their last song, the singer he goes, "The shit's about to hit the fan," and then everyone goes, "Yeah." <laughs> And then they go into Last Resort. <laughs> oh, shit's about to hit the fan. I mean, dude, at, with their audience, if that song doesn't make their audience go wild, then that audience isn't going to go wild. No. Yeah, this shit did hit the fan, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to RX Bandits. So you guys do Resignation and then and the Battle Begun. And then... What's what's the album after and the battle begun? Mandala. Mandala. And so at that point, the horn players kind of started to fall away, right? Yeah, for not any musical reasons, to be honest. But yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was it was just kind of a it was a really natural progression. I feel like you guys held on to the horns way longer than than most bands that had been late nineties ska bands. Like the horns stayed in the band and and like definitely held other auxiliary positions like doing backing vocals uh extra percussion uh, yeah. little bits of like synthesizer parts yeah and then eventually the band shifts down to just four members yep and and at that point though like were you guys starting to feel any pressure from like old school fans who were getting upset because there was no more ska a little bit, but anybody who had been with up to been with us up to that point knew that 
we were never going to be loyal to a genre. I was very vocal about in interviews about not being loyal to any one genre. It's not just a thing against ska. It's about us like, I mean, I guess it sounds kind of pretentious, but it's just us being true to ourselves where we were like, we want to see how like good at making music and being songwriters we can be. And it doesn't involve like any one genre or scene. Like everything is on the table, you know? Yeah. Um, so not that much to answer your question, not that much pressure or backlash that pretty much all got handled with resignation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At that point, people were either with you or, or not with you anymore. Yeah. And it was funny because it stressed me out for a second, but then right after that came out, as that came out, you know, we had just come off a warp tour and we were like, had really great response on warp tour like it actually gave us a bunch of hype back then when it still meant something in 2002 mm -hmm. and um so we had a lot of momentum from that because there was also like a filmed performance of us in jersey and stuff that was going around online and on the music channels um so yeah basically you know we we had handled a lot of that already and by the point that you know at mandala we were already in full flight and so people already knew to expect whatever yeah i mean the, the thing that i thought was the coolest is that uh you know the horns eventually fell away and, and you said you know for no reason no musical reason it was uh different reasons but the cool thing to me is when you guys came back around and did the and the battle begun uh anniversary shows you actually like hired horn players to have those parts in the show yeah i thought that that was that was great because it was like it was showing really that it it isn't about having a loyalty to any one genre it, genre it's about serving the music yes exactly yeah and the coolest thing about that also is i mean when you guys played those shows you had you had matt fozzy playing bass you had um who's the guy from matt's band that plays drums javier Javier, he was on, he was on drums, and the coolest thing I felt like about watching that show is I had seen you guys back in the day when that album came out. I'd seen you play those songs, yeah, um, a lot. <laughs> but uh, when I saw that specific performance, it felt really special because it felt like everyone was playing to serve the songs instead of trying to like flex musically as hard as they can yeah like 1000 percent. yeah yeah we were literally just trying to serve the record it was total like we want to recreate the listening experience that we think all of our fans who love this record have you know and create that live yeah i i mean i thought it was really commendable it was a great performance thank you it was really fun to do you know so let's also can we talk a little bit about sound of animals fighting sure again very not ska very not ska, but how many members of, of that band were in ska bands? <laughs> <laughs> These are the kind of questions we ask. Okay, so who's the mastermind of, of Sound of Animals Fighting, in your opinion? Oh, it's not, not just my opinion. The, the commissioner of Sound of Animals Fighting is Rich Balling, former trombonist of RX and Pharmaceutical Bandits, yes. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Objection. He's leading the witness. 
You know what's funny about this, Steve, is is when I was like thinking about us coming down here and recording this, I was I was thinking like, well, what if we just put Steve on trial right now? <laughs> put him on trial for crimes crimes against Ska, <laughs> defending Ska. Wouldn't that be a weird angle? I, I would just say that I would be like, yeah, I would be uh, convicted of treason because I'm like a, <laughs> I'm a double agent against Ska. Yeah. And uh, with Ska, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really fair summation. And I, I feel like that's that's a good place to be in that in that ebb and flow. There's no reason to be 100% loyal to things all the time. Like there's time there's times when everything sucks, right? Yeah. And yeah. there's no reason to like stand behind something when it sucks. Like that's, yeah. I think that's the falsest thing. That's when you're not being true to yourself. Yeah. And, you know, to speak to what you just said, that point is that where I am now, even though my introduction to ska was through people adapting ska to ska punk and this third wave of ska, you know, um, since then I've really come to love ska, but not ska of America, you know, uh, Jamaican ska, I, I really love like rock steady reggae, like, I really love it. And a lot of two-tone, like in early English beat, selector and specials, like, and even like the early incarnations, like Citizen Fish of like mm-hmm. what became ska punk, like is really awesome stuff to me. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So back to Sound of Animals Fighting, who else was involved in that that was ska? Well, there the people involved that are were in RX or are in mm-hmm. RX are me, myself, Rich Balling, Matt, the lead singer, and Seagak. Right. Um, I believe Craig from Chiodos and Drugs, who's like a DJ now or something. I believe he said he used to play in a ska band in Michigan when he was a kid. I could be wrong about that. Nice. Yeah. And that might be it. Even though there's a lot of other people involved. On the first couple of records, weren't there some of the hippos guys involved? Oh, oh you're right. Yeah. The first recording, uh, Rich Zonheiser, who played on early RX stuff, um, and who was the trombonist keyboardist of the hippos, mm-hmm. he contributed like a couple vocal parts, I believe, and some okay. like keyboard parts to the first EP. Nice. So are we at more or less, are we at more ska than not ska for the members or the contributors? Oh, it's, it's probably half and half. Half and half. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like a, a good amount of ska for a band that, that is not ska at all. Oh, well when you, if you're doing like a forensic deep dive of ska, it's everywhere, bro. Especially yeah. like in uh hardcore and metalcore, so much uh-huh. ska, so much ex ska. Yeah. 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 Who, who, off the top of your head, can you think of any? Yeah, can you out some people for us? <laughs> <laughs> There's some people recently that are in super not ska bands that were just like, that are super into it. And I forget. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank at the moment. It's okay. Yeah. Just know that honestly, they're everywhere. Yeah. For real. They, it really is. They're lurking everywhere. I mean, you keep in mind, like there was a time in the early aughts where after it had left the underground and been consumed by the mainstream, every single upbeat marketing commercial TV show theme, Food Network song, all ska. 
Yeah. So. And that's and that's part of why that that meme about mozzarella sticks is like such a thing, because like all those commercials back in the day for all that junk food, like all had ska songs in them. Yeah, it's it's just uh, it also became problematic because ska singularly as a genre, in my mind, in its origin, is 1000 percent predicated upon a very specific groove and being in that groove. And when that genre becomes adapted by the bunch of people who approach music with the opposite of groove and being in the pocket, <laughs> yep. it, it is a very fast way to, how shall I say, pull it into something that uh, doesn't do the genre justice, you know, right. or doesn't serve it, you know, so. Definitely. So in addition to, the chinkies you also you also played in bruce lee band didn't you oh yeah i forgot yeah mike came down around 2007 and he had us and rx be bruce lee band for an ep and then we went to japan with him as the bruce lee band in 2007 yeah six or yeah. seven yeah. what what would you say is the i mean i, I i'm Eventually, we'll talk to Mike about this, but I want to get your take on it. What's what would you say is the difference between Bruce Lee Band and the Chinkies? Hmm. Uh, I think he wasn't really knowing the difference at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, it was kind of like an aesthetic difference. But I think that looking back on it now, uh, the difference was that like because he used like Dan and Rob Kellenberger and uh tower player homie, like the Chinkies already had a lot more of like a slick kind of musical sound, especially because Robert Berry uh, was the engineer recording all that stuff. And he played all the organ parts and okay. Robert Berry is like, not just an excellent keyboard player. He is like a really masterful. I mean, this is a guy that became Emerson Lake and Palmer became Emerson Lake and Barry. Like he took that dude's place and played in that band. Uh, so me having at 19 by ear, having to learn all of his organ solos and organ parts, it was like, for me, um, what people pay for now with that masterclass shit or whatever. Like I had like a Robert Barry masterclass and it got me so up to par. So I think, uh, one of the main differences aside from aesthetics of like records and stuff was like the, the style of music that was put into the chinkies as opposed to Bruce Lee band at the time. Yeah. And kind of jumping off what you're saying, the first Bruce Lee band, he used less than Jake as his backing band. So, Oh, that's right. So that's kind of the, the found, like the foundation of what Bruce Lee band started as was less than Jake as, you know, their style. Yeah. And that's a very different feel. Chinkies I liked a lot because I felt like it was actually more ska in a way than other Mike's projects. It was kind of had that mid-tempo, fast, but not too fast ska, more of a group-oriented project of Mike's. And it didn't really do much punk rock. And um, I think it actually holds up best of all of Mike's projects in terms of the recordings themselves. I agree with you. I think that the Chinkies are coming. Uh, with the riffs and songs that Mike wrote with Dan and the other guys and their performance of it. Even when I listened, I listened to it like last year or something like 
it's really, really good ska punk from that time. Like yeah. a lot of those songs uh, really nail that Bay Area sound with that mix of punk and uh, like kind of like a frenetic ska, you know? Yeah. So I, I have two Chinkies questions really quick. One, from the tour that we did, the um, Misfits of Ska tour, Mike wanted you guys all to dress nice and wear suits. Yeah. How how punishing was that on that tour? I didn't mind it. No, it wasn't bad for you? Well, to be honest, like, I don't know if you know about Asians, but, like, we're not really smelly. And being, like, a 19-year-old <laughs> kid who was still, like, finishing puberty because I'm a late bloomer, like, right. it's not like I had B.O. Yeah, my clothes smelled weird, but they didn't smell, like, disgusting. No, I wasn't worried so much about the B.O. I was just, like, the clothes being wet and then put away and then getting moldy oh well that to me that it ties into the whole like being smelly thing but yeah i the the back of barney's bus at that time it had a pretty big like cargo hold area true and uh i always remember being able to like hang it up back there or somewhere you know what i mean uh on the bass drum case or something like that but all i had was like i wish i still had that pair of low top doc martens with the steel toes they were total rude boy doc martens they were amazing I, they were really awesome shoes. And then I had a real string bean tie that Mike gave me that he had from his skank and pickle days. And one of his skank and pickle jackets too. He let me wear. Nice. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask about was the new, the new Chinkies record. Cause I remember you, when you told me you were, you were working on that. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, I was just like wanting, I, I was kind of getting burnt out on doing a lot of stuff like producing and working on music and I wanted to do something kind of fun without any pressure. And I had asked Mike if he wanted, if I like wrote and recorded some ska punk songs, if he wanted to sing on it and release it on Asian man as a new project. He's like, yeah, totally. And so he came down and did it and we hadn't decided what it was going to be yet. Like we were kicking around names to think of, you know? Like, let's start a new ska punk Asian man release. And after we were mulling it around and listening to the final mixes, we are like, this kind of could be Chinkies, right? He's like, yeah, I think it could. Like, it's like a progression, but still like Chinkies, you know? Um, and so we just decided to have it be the Chinkies. That's awesome. <laughs> I want to ask about, so you did the Plea for Peace bike tour, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So... I remember hearing that everybody, maybe <laughs> except for Dan Pothast, like hurt themselves or just couldn't go on. Is that true? What was your experience like on that? Uh, yeah, Dan is definitely a trooper. And when Jenny Choi joined us a few days in, she was definitely a trooper too. But um, yeah, I sustained an injury that took me out for like a day. And it wasn't like a falling or injury. It was like, when you're, you know, like if your connective tissues in your joints aren't prepared and you're not conditioned to ride 70 miles three days in a row, the first time you've ever ridden a bike more than two miles, uh, things are going to start to go out. But that, that tour itself was like really fun. It was really fun. Like Matt and I finished an RX tour and then two days later went up to the bay to start that. So we were already in tour mode, yeah. So you didn't train, is what you're saying? No, literally. We got off tour. I went to Oakland when 
Adam and all of our other homies lived at the AK Press warehouse. And I went to this bike shop um, down the street from them in West Oakland, and I bought a bike, like a touring road bike. Uh, I drove down to Mike's house in Campbell. We got in the red van. Uh, Jerry Lundquist met us there. He flew in from St. Louis. And then me, Jerry, Matt from our band uh, drove up to Olympia. And then I believe Mike flew. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, so when you hurt yourself like three days in? Yeah, yeah. Because like our first day was like 50 miles and our second day was 72 miles. Um, and it just did my knee in. So I had to take, take the next day off. But we were also playing a couple shows at the campgrounds like acoustic. Um, so yeah, it was really fun. Now, I, from what I remember, some people didn't have very good bikes. Oh, is that my true? God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what type of bikes were people rolling on? Well, keep in mind that Mike had put this up on the Asian Man or Plea for Peace website, essentially making an open invite. So there were about five or six people from various places. Like one kid was from Illinois. We had a bike mechanic dude from Massachusetts and a couple other adventurous type people who were the, are totally the type of people that would be living like the van life now or something like that, like um, on the tour. So, uh, yeah, there were a couple people that had that didn't understand the scope of what we were doing because there wasn't really much preparation put into it, uh, to be honest. Like the planning was kind of haphazard you know, and, uh, there were people that show up with like, you know, like a target or a Walmart, like mountain bike or something, you know, just like (laughs) when you guys played to campsites, was it to just whoever happened to be there or was it, was there an announcement that there would be shows and people showed up? I believe there was an announcement because like the night before we would, uh, choose the destination for that next day's ride which would be like a campground and jerry driving the van with the trailer and all the uh, food and sleeping bags and tents and all that stuff would uh know that that was the final destination and yeah i believe mike would put it up online either on i think it was probably myspace at the time or like an asian man message board actually probably what do you remember about those shows or the uh, audiences that would that would be there uh, we actually en- only ended up playing at two different campgrounds, is what I remember. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying that, like, uh, Chris McCoggin and uh, Neil were going to come from Lawrence Arms, uh, but they didn't. And so basically, the only people there to play were Matt and I to do acoustic RX songs, Dan and Mike. And I remember you know, them being small, but one of the shows there was probably like nine or 10 people that came. <laughs> <laughs> and they came, they came for you. It wasn't just random people at the campsite. No, they literally came because like they read the, they got the information. Yeah. I remember that. Nice. In defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, 
how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I bet they were fun, you know, 10 people that came to a random camp spot. That's, a, that's an excited group of a small group of people. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate Mike for taking me on so many varieties of adventures because, you know, Mike takes me on my first tour to Japan and we're opening with one of the biggest Japanese bands at the time called Kimuri, which you guys know, obviously. And at the time right. they're playing literally like 2,000 to 4,000 cap venues all across Japan, right? So that's my first time with Mike. But then uh, he would come up and he would, at this time, he had this fascination with busking. So he would want to play on the street in Santa Cruz once in a while, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I would go out with him and do that. And I did that like twice, you know, on uh, Pacific. And um, yeah, man, that's still one of the most uh, frightening musical performance experiences I've ever had. There's nothing scarier than playing on the street, straight up. Like, And I played festivals television shows i've played you know all kinds of in stores and all that kind of stuff and like playing on the street is that takes so much uh bravery have you ever played for preschoolers because that's absolutely the most terrifying i would think that that would be more forgiving they're preschoolers they love any sound no they're assholes (laughs) (laughs) yeah they have no like if if they don't like what you're doing they'll just straight tell you and and they're so cute that you can't be mean to them. Yeah, but you just got to check your programming then, bro. Oh yeah. You got to dial it in. You can't you can't you got to come correct with little kids. Yeah, Adam Davis like you can't be going in there like trying to sing like, you know, a choking victim song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can eventually if you can do it right. Mephiscopheles or you know, any of the sinister ska bands? No, but I I remember the first time just playing for little little itty bitty kids and just trying to play like the basics like yeah. you are my sunshine and that sort of stuff like if you lose your concentration for one second or let them start to dominate the conversation like it just turns into absolute chaos kids are completely unforgiving well you know that four-year-old mind is still <laughs> developing so yeah. is the is what makes busking hard the fact that a lot of people are indifferent to buskers uh, I think that for people like us, in the context to this subject, like busking, musicians like myself are very spoiled. Um, we are used to, whether it be five people or 5,000 people, people intentionally coming to see you because they want you, or they want to see you, I should say. Um, whereas most people who start busking have this humble approach where they want anybody to listen at all which is why I think so many people get so good at performing through playing on the street. And so when you have that pretense of having fans either in your local high school band or to joining Mike Park's band and then going and playing these giant shows and all of my peers and contemporaries treating me a certain way because they think it's like a big deal that I'm in a band with Mike Park now and I do all this stuff, it makes busking even more frightening. But for me especially, like I have uh, very formidable social anxieties that I've dealt with my whole life. And 
bro, that was enough to like almost send me into like my first anxiety attack. Like, I was fucking tripping, dude. Like, you know, we're, I forgot the name of the bookstore at the end of the street in downtown Santa Cruz. But the first time we did it, we were in front of that bookstore. And it was like one of the hugest spots in Santa Cruz at the time, <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's frightening. Yeah, I think indifference is the worst experience. I, I can think of shows that I've played where people have been super into it and shows where people were clearly not into it and radiating a negative vibe. Yeah. But the ones that I hate the most were people who couldn't even pay attention. Yeah, especially when you're putting your all into the performance, like rocking out and being passionate and like people don't give a fuck. Yeah, I can understand that. So yeah, I could see how like that experience would translate into busking too. Just like, what? what's wrong with you people? Why aren't you paying attention to me? Oh, but it was really good for me. It was an enriching experience. It was one of those things that among many that starts to separate you from your ego and starts to put that tiny space that grows into a bigger space that grows into a bigger space of, of feeling like you just, you are entitled to some sort of validation or attention or anything like that, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it was very good for me, especially at that time, because I could have, I needed all the help I could get at keeping my ego from being inflated and nothing is a better antidote to the young ego than hanging out with Mike Park and him being your older brother type figure. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he made it, uh, he, I am grateful to Mike for making it a part of his busy schedule to always keep me in check and remind me that I wasn't shit. <laughs> <laughs> So to tell me, uh, tell me the thing that Mike Park does to you. Honestly, now I'm kind of scared because for the past six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, he hasn't. I haven't been on that side of him where he does that shit to me anymore, and it's like scared me. It still irks me. I'm like, dude, disrespect me in some way. Come on, like that's how I know I'm close to you. You know, uh, he's so respectful to me now. <laughs> like. I'm like, damn it. Like, do you respect me as an equal now? Fuck, man. What's wrong? But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he used to just always remind me, uh, that I shouldn't get a big ego and that, you know, this guy's better than me and that guy's better than me. And honestly, all sarcasm aside, I did, I do appreciate that like a lot, you know? For uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I probably have more stories about my shock and awe at things that he does to other people. <laughs> Or has done to other people, like really close to him too, where I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I had a strange experience. Mike is just, you know, I've I've lived with him. I've known him for so long. He just says the weirdest shit to me. Yeah. And um, I gave him a copy of my book and he texts me. He goes, your book's really good. And that's it. And I'm like, <laughs> where's the insult to follow this compliment? Right. Yeah. How irked were you? Well, I was more suspicious. <laughs> like what is, what's going on here? Uh, but it's all love with him. You know, we, know yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> did you live at the Campbell house at the same time Jim did? Yeah. Yes. I lived, I was, um, me and Peter from slow Gherkin were the very first two roommates. Yep. You, yep. Peter Cowan. I remember totally. Yeah. And then Peter left and then Jim came in and then, then I left sometime before Jim. I actually moved to Santa Cruz after that for a little while. Cool. Yeah, that's cool, man. I, honestly, that's probably the last time I've looked at your face in person. 
(laughs) (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So now you have a podcast called the musicians guild. Yeah. Can we, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. If you want to, sure. How, how did you decide you wanted to start doing a podcast? It was kind of like a culmination of things. Um, I had listened to a lot of podcasts and people who I had had conversations with regarding different interviews and stuff had mentioned to me that I might be somebody that people might want to listen to say shit and talk. Um, And so after a pandemic hit and all tours were canceled, our booking agency, uh, Sound Talent, started a media company with a podcast division. So they took on pre-existing shows like Peter Pleasure and, uh, you know, like Axe to Grind, like pretty established podcasts. Like uh, Chris from Less Than Jake also has his podcast on the network. Yeah, the Chris that makes a podcast. Right, right, right. Um, and then like the wives of Mike Dirt and another guy in a band, like they have their podcast. So they kind of posseed up like a really formidable music podcast uh, sector. And so with no shows being happening and um, well, it kind of ties into it. So I'll mention it, but like I suffer from panic disorder, acute panic disorder. And uh, in the late spring, early summer after pandemic hit, I had gone through a particularly rough bout of it uh, where it was like, you know, it's debilitating for me for weeks at a time if it's bad. And so I needed to start kind of getting creative and my, a lot of my music creativity was locked up in like working with the band and like my professional music work and having all this pressure put on it. So it wasn't necessarily the most relaxing thing for me to like get back into right away. So uh, they had started the podcast network. I called up Dave, the head of it, who's also our booking agent and told him about my idea um, and see if they could help me at all. And he's like, I think that sounds like a great idea. Like, why don't we just add you to the network? And I was like, what? Like, I don't even know what I'm doing, you know, like, you know, and they were gracious enough to just have some faith in me. And I just kind of curated all the types of podcasts I listen to and uh, just try to find a voice. And I found out as soon as I started making it and thinking about it and formulating it that just the process of making it and how easy making a podcast is after like working on such intense music my whole life uh it was really relaxing and I just kept going with it because the feedback from both people close to me and not close to me uh was so overwhelming that uh yeah I I just felt really stoked and I feel really lucky to have started it with so much positivity around it. Nice. So I, I listen to your podcast a lot. And one of my favorite things about it is in addition to doing the um, regular conversations like this, like we're having now, um, you also just do some kind of like, uh, like, I, I guess essays maybe would be. Yeah. Like, uh, well, I call them the musicians digest, but you know, kind of like the reader's digest was, which is a bunch of like editorial nonfiction stuff, you know, and fiction both. Yeah. I, I mean, I find those really, really enjoyable. There was one I think that you recorded 
maybe just with your voice memos while you're, I think on a bike ride. Yeah. About tour. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I felt like, I mean, it, it got really, really personal. Like you, uh, like you, you could hear yourself having an epiphany on the bike ride. And I, I feel like you've probably experienced this like during like physical exertion where you'll have these moments where you see things a little bit clearer. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know you, you go out and you do a lot of hiking and you're, you're doing soccer. And I feel like those are some of the, the best moments to like actually have inspiration and, and these moments. And I thought it was really cool that you were recording at that time. Thanks. Thanks for listening and appreciating that. Yeah. I, I uh, it's a couple things like I found that uh, another big way of uh, like kind of psychological therapy for myself is just making myself vulnerable. It, it freed up so much anxiety and stuff for me. And so uh, I just was experimenting with capturing myself at my most vulnerable moments, which oftentimes come at the hand of feeling emotional. But like you were saying, also comes from me hitting my favorite sort of meditative activities, you know, like yeah. bike riding and stuff like that. So um, it just kind of worked out. And I was very insecure about releasing that. But I just thought, what do I have to lose? I'm this insignificant, tiny little speck amongst so many specks. Just do it. It doesn't matter. you know. So every time somebody says something nice about it, like I for real sincerely appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I think it definitely resonates with, with the type of people who are going to want to listen to your podcast anyway. So, you know, hats off to putting it out. The, the other thing that I really enjoy is all, all the interstitial music between parts. Oh, thanks. Those are all just your things, right? Yeah, and I try to kind of make them bespoke to my guests. So yeah, I I like that you ended the Brian Moss episode with the driveway to driveway super chunk riff. Nice, you got that. Nice. Of course, so good. That's awesome. I'm. <laughs> I love you for that, man. It was so it was so cute because it was like a it was like a little like love letter to Brian kind of at the end. Like, hey, here's remember this riff. Yeah, and uh, at that time, that song um, in 98, 97, 98, 99, it reminds me of like my most fond uh, teenage memories of summertime driving around Santa Rosa. It's just, you know, it's got a lot of uh, sentimental uh, power for me. Yeah, that's legit, man. You know me on such a deep level, deeper level than I ever knew, Adam Davis. Thank you. Of course. I mean, we've, I feel like we've, we've, put our heads down to go to sleep in a lot of the same weird spaces um, over the years, like either on tour together or. Or just, you know, separately on, on different routes. I'm uh, honored to have known you for 22 years. That's all I was going to say. That's great. It's been a crazy, crazy wild ride. No doubt. (laughs) Oh, one one other thing I want to talk about with with your producing, you you, you did some production on a little peep song. That's uh, technically it's Lil Peep. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm old guy. All that stuff he said about you, Adam, out the window. Out the window. <laughs> you don't know shit. Oh, and then you slap me in the face with this ignorance. No. Uh, uh, yeah, I co-wrote uh, two Lil Peep singles that ended up being singles yeah i mean that was this is crazy because like i you know i'm sure you guys can both relate like i feel a little bit 
out of the loop sometimes as far as like what young what young people are into you constantly hear in like interviews with band people they're like man is there even like an all-ages scene anymore like do kids still have house shows and you're like yeah of course they still there's still an all-ages scene and kids have house shows but they're kids and you don't get invited anymore (laughs) but like um but like you know i have a friend who has who has a couple daughters and and that's that's the music that they like and so like when I saw the other day that, you, you know, well, the other day, it was probably like over a year ago, um, you posted something about having produced, you know, two of those songs. I was like, oh my God, like, it's crazy to see that through line from like dudes playing in ska bands <laughs> to like this, like, you know, kind of like a completely different music phenomenon that's resonating with young people. But there's like a, a, a line that atta- like connects them. And it's just wild to me. A lot of it happened to just be like being a cockroach and hanging around long enough where stuff that you was that you were a contemporary of, such as early aughts emo, uh, was around. Even though I didn't make that music, uh, it was around long enough where there was this new style of hip hop, specifically SoundCloud rap, that was using a lot of samples of that kind of style of guitar playing and or moods, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I ended up being co-writer on two of those singles, like playing multiple guitar parts and stuff like that and shaping the beats with his producer beat, like the beat maker, uh, Smoke Sack, in the studio. And, uh, you know, when you, you do a lot of those things, you, you make beats for hip hop artists. I've made stuff with uh, other writing partners I have that, you know, get pitched to everyone from the game to two chains, you know what I mean? And stuff. And so you never know what's going to land because a lot of these rappers, it's as simple as them people lining up beats like 10 to 20 at a time. And we're talking each one people have poured their time and energy into. And then they sit there and just decide like, Oh, I want to flow over this one or not that one. Right. So, you do this stuff and you never know whether it's going to get used or not. And that's like part of the factory farming uh, exploitation of musicians by the major label music industry. Mm -hmm. But that's a different subject. Um, So anyway, yeah, I made those songs and then they ended up being chose for the record. And then that's already great as far as like residual income and, and uh, royalties and stuff. But then, Unfortunately, Gus, Lil Peep, he passed away, like literally as the record was supposed to come out. So it brought a lot of publicity and the record came out. But uh, they decided that the first two singles that were coming off the record were the songs that I co-wrote, you know, and uh, they were used in like his documentary and stuff like that. So uh, I lucked out on that situation. That's wild. What other, I mean, I feel like I've been kind of a little bit in the dark as far as the production stuff you've been working on. What, like one, what stuff have you done that you feel like is, is notable? And then two, what's, what's your day like when you go into the studio or do you go into the studio? Um, okay. So first question, I was doing a lot of producing between 2012 and 2015 uh, or 2011 and 2015. Um, and then RX got kind of busy again and super chaotic and I pre- pretty much stopped producing because I started putting my energy into other things. And when I wasn't producing records, I was doing a lot more hip hop, a la like Lil Peep and stuff like that. But 
like one of the first things I produced was a record for a female singer songwriter solo artist called Gardening Not Architecture, and she got a couple syncs of those songs that I produced in like uh, there was that I think it was like a it was a major network show like called Parenthood. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that. So I had producer points on that song, and that's like a big sync to get. It like the one of the episodes closed with that song. And then uh, there was a band called on Triple Crown Records called Weatherbox that I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, I did solo records from uh, for Vinny from the Movie Life, and mm-hmm. also Anthony from Bayside. Um, I produced a record for a band from my hometown called The Velveteen, and they're pretty like well known around that area. I'm forgetting some other stuff, but yeah, those are some of the things that come to mind. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, we played with, um, gardening art architecture at the plea for peace center, um, in Narbuz. Really? And then, yeah. And then Dessa played with Weatherbox, and I like that you call Vinny, Vinny from Vinny from movie life, not Vinny from I am the avalanche. Oh yeah. And obviously I am the avalanche. Well, it's like he does both now. So it's like, you know, right. or Vinny from, I have a band with him too. So yeah. Right. Tell everybody what your band with him is called. Oh, it's called Peaced Out. And yeah. it's kind of, that's a very, also a different kind of music. I call it uh converge on acid. So it's like converge meets Frank Zappa with a little bit like of psych- psychedelic converge. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. It's really cool for me to honestly relive a lot of these memories and happy times, and I appreciate you guys for that, for real. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scum. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaronharns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you'd like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Ska, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we leave you by saying, Ska, now more than ever. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.